Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio National Feminist Current Affairs Program, featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Carnegie. Women on the Line recognizes that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and that their sovereignty was never ceded. On this week's episode, we bring you a conversation I had about the rise of Hindu nationalism, Islamophobia, and fascism in India with academic Nisha Taplial and journalist and actor Sabah Zaidi Abdi. This conversation first aired on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast on the 8th of August 2023. Since the Hindu nationalist Bhartiya Janta Party was elected in 2014, India has seen a steady increase in violence against minorities and discrimination based on caste and religion. Muslims in particular have been a target of the BJP's Hindu nationalist agenda. Nisha Taplial is an academic at the University of Newcastle who is researching social justice activism in the contemporary Indian diaspora. Sabah Zaidi Abdi is an experienced Muslim journalist, creative director and actor from India who has lived in Australia for over 30 years. They are joining us on the show to talk about the escalating violence against Muslims in India. Thank you, Kanagi. Yes, good morning. How are you? We're very well. How are you both? Good, thank, thank you. you. Let's start by just kind of having a little bit of an overview of the BJP. As we know, they've had a long history of spreading anti-Muslim hate and propaganda even before they were elected. Uh, Nisha, could you maybe talk to us a little bit about this? Sure, Kanagi. Firstly, thank you to you for having us on this show to talk about uh, the terrible things happening in India. Before I begin, I would also like to acknowledge uh, the traditional custodians of the lands, waterways, and airways from which I join you, the Awabakal clan of the uh, Pamalong Nation. I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and also to any um, Aboriginal people who might be listening in. Thank you. So, to uh, very quickly, um, so the Bharatiya Janata Party are a political party. They are the political wing of a hundred-year-old uh, Hindu nationalist movement. Um, uh, so, 1920s, it began to form around 1925. This was primarily, initially, a movement of dominant caste Hindu men. It needs to be said. It also needs to be said that they were in conversation with and deeply influenced by the European fascisms that we see uh, in Europe at that time of the world. And so you see the uh, the founding fathers, if you will, um, using the same language of racial supremacy, um, ethnic cleansing, purity, and so forth. And they actually modeled their core organization, um, which is a sort of paramilitary uh, organization called the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh. I'll just refer to them as the RSS from now on. So the RSS, the way it's organized, the way they train, recruit, and train their cadre uh, is very heavily influenced by the black shirts, Mussolini's black shirts in Italy. Um, so uh, since then, it has grown into a vast uh, movement. Uh, some parts of it are highly organized and centralized, but there are also um, 
less formal uh, groups and uh, organizations working with this sort of triumvirate of the RSS, the BJP, um, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, VHP, the World Hindu Council. Um, interestingly, we have a chapter of the VHP right here in Australia, um, and they are permitted to provide um, special religious education, Hinduism, in New South Wales public schools. Um, what else should um, the listeners know? So, yes, even though they were banned multiple times in the first 50 years of their existence, around the 70s and 80s, things changed drastically, um, and they began to uh, come into the mainstream. They began to win elections. Um, you know, they began to uh, rule state governments, particularly in northern India. And so Modi's election in 2014 comes uh, at that point in the trajectory of this movement, right? Um, and this was certainly not the first time the Bharatiya Janata Party had won national elections. Um, they first came to national power in, in the 2000s. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much for that context. Uh, I know this is a really big subject, so I think it's really good for listeners to have the context of um, the language and the ties to to what was happening in Europe as well. I think that's not very commonly discussed, so that's really good to know. Mm -hmm. So despite India being a secular country historically, um, with one of the highest Muslim populations in the world, it's now a super hyper-polarized atmosphere where we're seeing violence against Muslims and Islamophobia escalate across the country. Just last week, a guard shot his colleague and innocent passengers on a train. Sabah, can you tell us a bit about this incident and how it's linked to the government steadily pushing this anti-Muslim rhetoric? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and you see, as um, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me over on the show. And, um, and just uh, as uh, Nisha mentioned, in recent years, we've seen that BJP rule um, emergence of consistent and planned persecution and religious vilification of minorities, and basically, uh, namely the um, the Muslims, and it has spread to Christians. I mean, what happened in Manipur recently was against uh, ethnic um, uh, groups or who follow Christianity, and similarly Sikhs and other scheduled castes and tribes. So this is an ongoing attack on mosques, prayer places, um, which is also include the lynching, targeted minorities, um, events, and they go and they burn their businesses, they burn their houses, and uh, all sorts of ugly and inhumane uh, persecution is happening across India. Recently, we have seen there were three incidents that happened in Haryana. Uh, one was uh, then train uh, a constable uh, uh, who's supposed to be protecting the passengers on the train uh, went on a rampage and shot uh, one senior uh, constable, one senior officer of his, and then he went in the uh, train and picked up, hand-picked uh, Muslim-looking people with beards and shot them one by one. And there is a video which uh, I have read about is that he actually put his foot on the chest of one of the uh, killed person and said, if you have to live in India, you have to vote uh, Yogi and uh, for a BJP um, 
So this is this is what is the level of violence. In similar incident in Mewat, uh, which is uh, uh, now known as Nu, which is on the border of Haryana and Rajasthan, and which is predominantly a Muslim uh, majority area, who have lived there for centuries, and there has been uh, violence against them, which was done by BJP uh, supported uh, Bharatiya, uh, sorry BHP. Vish Hindu Parishad and Bajrang Dal, and they incited the whole, you know, they held rallies under the nose of the administration and government, which turned a blind eye. In fact, they have a protection and support of a lot of these law enforcing um, agencies, including police and um, judiciary and in uh, civil administration. So we saw that they, um, I was watching the video last night, and I saw that this was being done in broad daylight when people who are a criminal record, uh, people like Manu, he, he was involved uh, for two murders of Nasir and Junaid. In, um, so these Gaurakshaks, and uh, they were instigating violence, asking people to march with them to no district, and it was happening right under the nose of I saw the police were standing there, and no one was stopping. And then they went on a, uh, they, the mob moved, and they went, and uh, then there was a resistance. And the social media plays a very important role there, in a sense that people are constantly, hate messages are being sent, and uh, mobs have been gathered using that uh, social media. And uh, then there was violence that happened, the resistance from the other side, and there were six people who died in that process. There was also an attack in Gozan, uh, which is supposed to be a very high-tech area, where uh, a mob uh, attacked a mosque. It is uh, called the Majlis Mosque. And they went inside, and there were six policemen watching the whole thing while thousands of people walked in. They burned the mosque. They went and killed a 19-year-old uh, Nayab Imam, uh, Imam Saad, who is, uh, you know, who is actually a great promoter of uh, harmony and um, mm. brotherhood amongst the, amongst the Muslims. And, uh, you know, I heard a video of him saying that, oh my God, when will the day will come that Hindu and Muslim will share the same plate of food and turn my country into this blissful place. So all these kinds of things were happening. And now, They've gone and there's been a curfew imposed and, of course, the first thing they do is to uh, cut the Internet out and there is no uh, communication, therefore, a deep sense of fear. People are fleeing their homes. Businesses have been burned. There has been a huge violence and uh, there's still a state of curfew. And uh, certainly Muslims at this stage in India are feeling deeply insecure and what is worse is that there is no protection from law enforcing agencies. And what is very shameful is that nobody comes and condemns these events in India. So this is becoming a norm in today's India where vigilante groups, uh, Gaurakshak groups, which are uh, trying to protect so-called the, the, the cow, uh, slaughters, etc. In the name of religion, people are really being persecuted, especially the minorities. 
And I've been talking to a lot of people and people feel extremely uh, vilified, extremely marginalized, and there is no one to come and protect them. So basically a secular country has turned into a violent country. And, and, and what is happening is that there is no accountability on mm-hmm. part of administration. They can go escort-free. People who are, uh, you know, have been charged for murders are roaming freely. So these these kind of groups have complete support of the government. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's clear that that's the case by the brazen nature of these incidents. It's Mm -hmm. like, you know, people are being shot on trains, people are filming it. Um, you know, entire cities are being... And watching the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's very clear that they're getting this confidence and almost being instructed from somewhere, you know? Um, The whole dehumanization that is happening, you see, in the country, mm. people are taking it as a normal norm. It is okay to have violence against Muslims. It's something, it reminds me so much of Germany where Jews were just targeted Mm. for being Jews. So it is turning very ugly and, you know, there's 20% of that population approximately uh, is Muslim. That was the first part of my conversation with Nisha Taplial and Sabah Zaidi Abdi about how the current Hindu nationalist government in India came into power and the communal violence Muslims have been facing in India. In the second half, we discussed the role of the Indian diaspora here in Australia and around the world, the lack of accountabilities for the perpetrators of violence, including the current government, and how toxic the culture has become. I think it's also interesting the stark contrast of, you know, Modi's visit to Australia and mm-hmm. the way in which he's treated here. And, you know, he has this huge support from the Indian diaspora, not just in Australia, but, you know, around the world. Uh, and I think, you know, that's that's emboldening the government and funding the government in lots of ways as yeah. well, you know. Um, Nisha, can you talk to us a bit about that contrast and, you know, how... Uh, the Indian diaspora plays a part in this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, the movement began to organize in the diaspora systematically in the 70s and the 80s. <clears throat> and as I've already told you, they're highly organized, uh, extremely well-resourced. Um, so they are very well-established now um, in uh, places like um, you know, Turtle Island, the United States, uh, to a lesser extent in Canada, definitely the UK, um, you know, and also countries where you have twice, thrice, and four times migrants, right? Um, uh, places where Indians were taken as indentured laborers uh, and so forth, you know, across the Caribbean, Suriname, Guyana, Fiji, much closer to home. So to make the point that um, cultivating the diaspora has always been a strategic aim, Mm. and they've gone about it with the same thoroughness that they do everything else. Um, And I think Sabha mentioned uh, how what an important role social media plays in this movement, but I would add that they have always used media very effectively, right? So up to the, you know, before digital media, they had their own publishing houses and they churned out an amazing amount of propaganda and misinformation and hate, right, against Muslims and Christians and also to draw, to create this, um, this idea that all Hindus were the same and therefore should be unified against these foreign threats. And that message of a global 
Hindu identity has seems to have appealed very strongly since they started doing it. Okay, so that's one part of the picture. And then there's of course Modi, who has his personal cult of personality that I think we all know very well. Uh, Modi again is a very smart user of media. He was the first, as Chief Minister of Gujarat, to hire American, um, you know, public relations. Uh, people to run his elections and run his administration, and he's just gotten bigger and better at it. As you know, this has been amply documented in in you know everywhere. So, in terms of who his following are, that's a much more complicated question, right? There are obviously the the movement members, right? The uh, the hardcore RSS members, uh, BJP members, VHP members, all these different groups and organizations. I think your listeners might also be interested to know that I would say seventy percent of their work is done through education cultural activities and volunteering and civic service, right? Mm. So you can see how people who are just looking for belonging, uh, for a sense of national pride, all these positive things might be attracted to these spaces, right? And then they unknowingly oftentimes become part of this much bigger monster that we're talking about now. So, yeah, in terms of Modi's following, it's a really mixed bag. There are the hardcore Hindutva activists, but there are also a lot of people who just, you know, living outside India who feel, um, you know, that uh, they haven't been able to set down roots in some uh, Western country where they've settled. Um, you know, they've experienced racism, discrimination, even hate, right? Um, and for those reasons, they find Modi's very masculine, uh, I should say toxic masculine nationalist messages very appealing. They, you know, they give him a sense of, uh, he gives them a right. sense of pride is what they tell us. And the third piece of this is we can't let Western governments off the hook, right? So let's remember that Modi was actually denied a U.S. visa for 10 years after um, there was a Muslim genocide in his home state of Gujarat in 2002. And activists in the U.S. versus were able to lobby successfully to ensure that he couldn't visit the U.S. for 10 years because he was a frequent visitor before that. He's a very, very yeah. well-traveled act politician, right? Um, and then, of course, he was elected in 2014, and all that changed overnight. Obama, you know, praised him. So, of course, he enjoys support from all the authoritarian, anti-democratic um, leaders like himself, but he's also been repeatedly given legitimacy by every, you know, from by Obama, by Biden. Um, you know, Macron gave him some very big French medal two weeks ago, even while this violence was unfolding. Uh, so, you know, this, these contradictions are very concerning. And of course, our own Prime Minister Albanese, who is such a staunch proponent for human rights, social justice, uh, inclusion at home, uh, has refused also to say anything. And he has been with Modi while these, you know, because now in India, this kind of violence is enacted every week, if not every day. So there's no question of saying we don't know anymore, right? And even though the media and the courts and the police are helping all of this happen, there are still some very brave independent journalists and activists who are making sure that these um, awful atrocities are not completely silenced. 
So, you know, this is a really complicated story, isn't it? And um, activists here have repeatedly asked both Abbott and uh, Albanese and, you know, they're working with um, state and local governments to try and raise awareness about what's happening. Um, they've been uh, hard at work for at least five years now, many of them yeah. for much longer in the case of Kashmir. Um, but for lots of different reasons, our politicians are prioritizing Australia's economic interests, right, um, over what's happening to Muslims and Christians and Dalits and Adivasis in India. Yeah, I, it's, it is incredibly concerning. And, you know, mm -hmm. Sabah, I'd like to hear what you have to say based on not only your lived experience as a Muslim woman, both in India and in Australia, but also as someone who's been involved in the media, both, you know, as, as a journalist, um, as well as an actor behind the cameras. Um, you know, what has your experience been over the years? Well, I think just to sort of... Uh uh, add to what uh, Nisha has just said, and I think a lot of uh, minority groups are pretty active overseas as well in condemning what is happening in India. And uh, while there was this big uh, display and show of public support by non-NRI Indians overseas on during the overseas visit of Modi, we also see that a lot of people have boycotted. None of the minority groups were there. And there were uh, uh, various uh, protests and um, circulars have been signed by all those groups who are anti-Modi and who are, uh, you know, upholding human rights. And the whole idea, the selective uh, picking of human rights when it suits Australian government was brought to forefront by all these groups and they were criticized. And the fact that uh, as Nisha mentioned, the economic interests have been put above everything else, which is a bit of a shame. Uh, but this is, uh, it's not that people are sitting quietly about it. There is a lot of hue and cry and noise, except that they are not as vocal and as, uh, as these Hindutva um, groups. So they have become very strong and they are sending a lot of money and a lot of uh, support and all these big shows that they are put up in America or Australia or other countries, they are broadcast live to reinforce, look what Modi has lifted up the profile of Indians and the Hindu nationalism uh, all across the world. And now we are, everyone is taking notice of us. We have become important. So this is the kind of psyche that they are feeding in into the majority. And uh, there is a huge divide happening within the society, which I feel, in, in, in overseas as well. A lot of uh, the gulf, the chasm has come between different religious groups living overseas. So uh, those who are supporting BJP, they have certainly become very, you know, distant themselves from other minority groups. And this is, this is a sad reflection of what's happening in India. is also being fed into the societies overseas. But um, I think coming back to your question was that uh, India has a history of uh, communal violence and started from partition onwards. But it was never that ugly and that normalized. Mm -hmm. And it is okay now to do Muslim bashing or minorities, which is a very, very sad turn of events. And I was reading somewhere that, you know, Indian 
um, the way the Indian society and the whole administration and BJP-led government is operating, we are reached a stage we are so close to a genocide of minorities, which is very scary and very worrisome. I don't live in India anymore, and therefore, but you know, I can see all the Muslim relatives, the Muslim friends, and even uh, secular-minded uh, non-Muslim friends feel extremely concerned because the fact that the fear has not set into the society. Whoever raises voice against, if you are not with me, you are against me. So uh, the media, the judiciary, everything, the academic institutions, there is no voice of protest. They have been silenced. I know a lot of people didn't go and protest when Modi was here because they were scared that they will lose their uh, non-resident Indian visas that they have. So, yeah, uh, which, which, yeah, I mean, they're scared to go there because, and they feel that my relatives in India will be persecuted. So, this is the kind of psyche and mindset that Indian Muslims and minorities are at this point of time. They're pretty hopeless because a lot of people feel that we have lost our battle, the genie is out of the bottle, and the, what has happened is that this communalism has now traveled to a large diaspora of uh, uh, non, I would say the majoritarian uh, psyche. And in India, and as well as it's traveling overseas, of course, it's not violent. We have some incidents of violence here as well against Sikhs and all. But it is something that is not as ugly or as unmanaged because there is a police and law enforcing agencies active here. But in India, there is no law enforcing agency. It is free for all. And if you can protect yourself, that's good. If you don't, then, you know. You become a victim of it. Exactly. And so that's why a very sad state of affairs. It is. It absolutely mm-hmm. is. And I think that's where lots of intersections of caste and class and wealth mm-hmm. disparity, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. all this very comes in. You know? situations. Yeah. Exactly. Because some people have the means to protect themselves and others simply don't. Others don't. And so... I mean, a that's lot of people want to migrate overseas, but how many can? Yeah, you that, know? that's right. It's a 20 person mm-hmm. population, the largest Muslim population in the world. Yeah. yeah. And... and uh, I, I don't think a lot of um, people outside of India are aware of that. You know, it is one, it is the largest population mm-hmm. of Muslims in the world. So yes. while yeah. it's a minority in India, it's actually a huge yeah. number of people. I mean, the fact that on, on political level, there is hardly Muslim representation in BJP government. Mm-hmm. That's so right. They are, they are no, there is no voice that can go and defend them. So it's just, a, uh, as uh, Nisha mentioned, that they are some fearless who work on totally on on support of the their patrons. They are the people who are still putting up the fight, but Ex- most of them have just surrendered. Exactly. And they, they're, they're just doing it for their own survival and benefits. So it is a very, it's a very uh, a situation where no facts and figures and what BJP has done, they have bought over all these people, their licenses. So how, and they don't get any support if they are anti- uh, BJP. Exactly. So the whole environment has become so toxic. You just heard from Nisha Taplial and Sabah Zaidi Abdi about the Hindu nationalist government and rising Islamophobia in India. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au slash women on the line. 
I'm Kanagi. Tune into Women on the Line next week on your community radio station.